Thanks, mate. Okay, morning, everybody. Morning. Okay, I'm going to get you to chat to each other for a little second here, just at the start of our talk this morning. There's a sentence on the screen. The church was designed first to be blank, right? You've got to answer that or end or finish that sentence with one word, okay? So I want you to talk to the person beside you for a minute, right? One minute. The church was designed first to be one word. Go. Time starts now. Thirty seconds. Ten seconds. Four, three, two, one. Okay. Anybody brave enough to venture an answer? Come on, don't be shy. You're going home anyway, so no, you're never going to see most of these people again, right? Um. Any answers? The church was designed first to be, yes? A bride, it's a good answer, yeah. But it's not the one I'm looking for, okay. Any others? That's a great answer, by the way. Home, good answer as well. Dave would be proud, fits the back of his t-shirt, right? Um, but not the answer I'm looking for. This is a quote, by the way, from a, a preacher, yeah. Refuge, a great answer as well, but not what I'm after. One more, take one more, see if anybody can get it. Isaac, come on, take it home. Oh, missional. No, but close, right? So um, there's a, there was an old Baptist preacher called Charles Haddon Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, right? Some of you might have heard of him. He said this, the church was designed first to be aggressive. Aggressive, right? And then he said, the church was not intended to remain stationary at any point, but to continue onwards until its boundaries became commensurate or equal with those of the world. The church was designed first to be aggressive. Anybody think aggressive? No, neither did I, right? I think it's a challenging quote. All of those other things that people said, I think, are right to say about the church. But Spurgeon's word, I think, captures something of the missional dynamic of the church, that it's not meant to remain stationary, but its boundaries are meant to spread out until they become commensurate with the boundaries of the world. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to read about Jesus calling the first disciples. Thinking about fishing today, I have to confess, I have like next to no experience of fishing. I've been fishing once, and I caught something that was like the equivalent of a goldfish, and I don't know, just threw it back in and was bored the whole time. I don't know very much about fishing, but this is a miraculous catch of fish that's happening in Luke chapter five, okay? So we're gonna read it together and then we're gonna think about what it means to be on mission with Jesus. Remember as we read, this is the word of God so you can trust it completely. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. 
He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled up their boats on the shore, <clears throat> left everything, and followed him. Keep your Bible open, Luke chapter 5. Before we launch into this passage itself, it's helpful for us to understand a little bit about the context in which all of this takes place. We know from Luke chapter 4, you might want to flick back a page, verse 21 in particular, that the coming of Jesus has signaled that everything is about to change. Jesus has preached in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. He has read from the prophet Isaiah. He has declared, declared that the scripture that he read was fulfilled in their hearing, that actually it was about him. And upon hearing him preach, the people are amazed. They had never heard anyone teach with such insight and authority. And then throughout the rest of chapter four, the intrigue surrounding Jesus continues. He makes his way to Capernaum and he teaches again in the synagogue there. The people there are also amazed at his teaching. He drives out an evil spirit in the synagogue, probably not something that most people were used to seeing in the average church service. And towards the end of chapter four, he goes on to heal many people before eventually saying to the crowds, look, I must leave because I have come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he proceeds to preach in the various towns throughout Judea. So Jesus is preaching in Nazareth. He's preaching in Capernaum. He has gone to preach throughout Judea. Why has Jesus come? He has come to preach, okay? Luke makes that very clear. Why is it important for us to know all of this? I think it's helpful for a couple of reasons. It's important to understand, first of all, that by the time we get to Luke chapter five and Jesus doing what he's doing here, he's already been creating a bit of a stir in the region. He's already been attracting the attention of some people. That's why there are people there listening to him in Luke chapter five. But it's important for another reason. It's important because we know that by the time we get to Luke chapter five, it's very, very likely that Jesus has already had some sort of contact with this man, Simon. Simon here is, is Simon Peter. He later changes his name to Peter. He becomes Peter the disciple. But at this point, he's called Simon. I'll probably call him Simon and Simon Peter and Peter throughout all of this, but they're the same person, okay? But it seems very likely that at the end of chapter four, one of the people that Jesus heals, we're told explicitly, is Simon's mother-in-law, okay? And when he does that in Capernaum, more than likely, Simon Peter would have been there. So Jesus and Simon Peter have already had at least some sort of introduction by the time we get to Luke chapter five. So Jesus has come to preach. There's a buzz in the area. Jesus and Simon Peter 
have met. That brings us then to Luke chapter 5, and the passage begins. How does it begin? What's Jesus doing? He's preaching, okay? Luke couldn't make it more clear. He's at the lake of Gennesaret. The lake of Gennesaret, by the way, is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew, Mark, and John, it's always called the Sea of Galilee. In Luke's gospel, it's always called the lake of Gennesaret. But what we see here is that Jesus is preaching by the shore and the crowd is growing and growing and gradually it becomes harder and harder for him to be heard. And so Jesus gets into a little boat and puts it out from the shore a little bit and makes it into a sort of makeshift pulpit. Why? Because he's come to preach and he wants people to be able to hear him. And the first thing I want us to see in the passage is that Jesus makes a command, right? He commands Simon Peter, to do something. So look at verse four. He says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now you've got to work with me here, right? You've got to try and picture the scene and imagine what's going on. Jesus is preaching. They're over sort of fixing their nets. There's a crowd there. There is obvious irony in what Jesus is saying here. Who is he to the crowd? He's just a carpenter's son from Nazareth. He's not from the local area, nor does he, as far as the crowd are concerned, have any clue about our background in fishing. Peter, on the other hand, is an experienced fisherman. He is probably very familiar with these waters. He knew the best time and the best place to catch the fish. And on the surface, it looks as though Jesus is giving advice here on a subject about which he knows very little. I don't know if you ever do that. It's really annoying when people do that, isn't it? when they give you advice on things that you don't really, they don't really know what they're talking about. I do it with cooking. Sometimes Linda will be making something and I'm like, well, I think maybe she's put a bit of that spice in there and she's like, just go away. I, I find myself doing it now with parenting, but the thing is we're both as clueless as each other with that so I can get away with it. But it's really annoying when you give advice on something and you don't know what you're talking about and Peter could be forgiven for thinking that that's what Jesus is doing here. The task that Jesus has given him has failure written all over it. I'm sure Peter must have been thinking to himself, Jesus, do you not know? Do you not know who we are? Do you not know that we are experienced fishermen? We've been to the best place at the best time and we have caught nothing. Now you're looking at us to go to the worst place at the worst time? He must have been thinking, okay, I'll let down these nets, but I don't expect that we're gonna catch very much. But here's the thing, right? You've gotta get this. What we see is that because Jesus commanded him, Simon Peter let down the nets, right? He knows that Jesus' command seems strange, and yet he does it because Jesus commanded him to do it. That strikes at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That whenever his commands seem confusing and hard, that whenever his commands directly challenge our view and preferences, when something within us thinks that we know better than Jesus, then we face the opportunity for obedience and growth as his disciples. And if we're thinking about what it means to be on mission, to be witnessing to those on the front line, before we think about any of that, we've gotta be asking ourselves, am I someone who is living in obedience to the commands of Jesus? Am I really a faithful disciple. Think with me for a moment about what must have been involved for Peter here as all of this is happening. Think about the cost to him, first of all. 
What would it meant for him to go back into the water and let down the nets again? Well, he's, he's just come out of the water. He's been there all night. He's probably exhausted. He's just spent most of the morning cleaning his nets. Now Jesus is saying, no, go back into the water and get them dirty again. There was cost involved here. There will be cost for you in following and obeying the commands of Jesus. But what about his reputation as well? I think that's maybe the biggest stickler for Peter here. There's a crowd watching all of this. He's the one who's supposed to know what he's doing. Not this rabbi, carpenter's son from Nazareth, the sticks. And yet, Peter is willing to count the cost and put his reputation on the line. Even when it is inconvenient to him, he obeys the commands of Jesus. You guys have got to understand, if you're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus, then that will mean that you choose to obey him, (coughs) excuse me, even when it's really, really difficult for you, even when you are torn in your heart about whether or not you want to obey him. This isn't in my notes, but I think that the area in which you will feel most under pressure to compromise on this is in the area of relationships and sexuality, right? So what's the most important thing that you've got to decide to do in your life? Most important decision you've got to make is whether or not you're going to be a Christian, okay? Second most important decision in your life is if you're going to be single or married and who it is that you're going to end up with. Second most important decision in your life. And lots of young Christians end up messing up the first one because they want what's better for them in the second one. But if you're to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus, then you've got to obey him, even if it's costly, even if it's hard, even if it's inconvenient. That's an aside. It's got nothing really to do with fishing, except flirt to convert. Nah, it's bad, right? Okay, so we've seen the, the command of Jesus. Second thing we're gonna see then is a confession that's made in the middle of this, this little story, okay? Before the confession, there is the actual great catch of fish. It is a miraculous catch of fish. One of the things that Luke is teaching us here is that Jesus is actually not just a carpenter's son. He is not just a rabbi from the sticks. He is actually God himself. And Peter is actually beginning to notice that as well. We know that because of his reaction to the astonishing catch of fish. So look at verses nine and 10 of Luke chapter five. The men who accompanied Peter are amazed at the amount of fish that they've managed to catch, but none of them respond in the way that Peter does. Peter is the only one who falls at Jesus' knees and makes this confession in verse eight. Verse eight's weird, right? When Simon Peter saw this, the miraculous catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. It's weird. That's a weird reaction. Strange. You would think he would be thanking Jesus, right? Miraculous catch of fish. He has suddenly become a very wealthy man here, Simon Peter. Lots of fish. You would think he'd be thinking, I need to go into business with this guy. He knows where the fish are. It's not how he reacts. Why? Because he's beginning to see who Jesus really is. He's beginning to see that at the very least, there is something godly about Jesus. Now, he doesn't get the full picture yet, right? If you were in the tent last night, you'll know that Peter doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah until Luke chapter nine. But at this point in Luke chapter five, at least he's beginning to see that there is something holy about the Lord Jesus. 
And when he realizes that, he recognizes his own sinfulness and unworthiness before God. And so he responds in fear, trepidation, you might say. You know something, there's actually a sense in which Peter's response here to Jesus is an appropriate response to God. In the Old Testament, when, when people are in and experience the presence of God, their first response is almost never adoration. It is almost always fear initially. So when Isaiah is transported into heaven and he sees the triune God sitting on the throne of heaven and he describes it for us in Isaiah chapter six, what does he say? He says, woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. He's terrified in the presence of God. His response initially is not adoration, but fear. And so there's a sense here in which Peter's response is appropriate. If you're a Christian here this morning, then I think you will know at least something of what Peter feels in verse eight. You will know that in the presence of a holy God, you are not holy in and of yourself. And so you need external help to make you be able to stand in his presence. You'll know something of the feeling of verse eight. If you're kind of on the edges of faith, you're kind of back and forward about whether or not you want to become a Christian, you'll know, I know I'm not right with God, I know that he is holy and perfect, and I know I need to get right with him. You'll know at least something of the feeling of verse eight. If you're not a Christian, and you're not that interested in Christianity, and you're kind of just here because you're here, verse eight just seems weird to you. One of the things we've got to understand about the gospel and especially when we come to share it with other people, is that we need to understand, and other people need to understand, that in and of ourselves, we are sinful. We are sinful. And if we're going to receive the grace of forgiveness, we first need to come to terms with our sinfulness. And so when you're on mission, right, when you are evangelizing, and you're gonna talk about what that means in your groups, when you're sharing the gospel with people, we need to tell them the truth. And that means we've got to cross the pain line with people. We've got to be honest with them that actually, in and of yourself, you need a rescuer. You're sinful. You need to repent. These are hard things to say in our culture. But we need to say them if we're to be fishing faithfully in the way that Jesus calls us to. But look at how Jesus responds, right? Peter is, is terrified in his presence. How does Jesus respond? Verse 10, he says, do not be afraid. What is Peter at this point? Afraid, right? Jesus says, do not be afraid. And he says that consistently in the gospels, actually. Do not be afraid. And that is the grace of the gospel beginning to unfold now remember, Jesus knows what Peter is like, okay? He knows his past. More importantly, he knows his future. He knows that Peter is going to be massively up and down, right? But Jesus responds with grace and gentleness and love and says, do not be afraid. So when you're thinking about witnessing to your friends and telling them about the gospel, we don't just want to tell them the bad news, We've got to tell them that Jesus says, do not be afraid. 
He is gentle and gracious and loving and caring. Like I was saying on Wednesday night, he is not here to scold you. He's not. Do not be afraid. In church I work in, Hill Street, sometimes we do a course called Christianity Explored for people who are, who are looking into the Christian faith. And one of the lines that we use with people when we're trying to explain both the depth of our sinfulness and the depth of God's grace um, is a line from a, a pastor called Tim Keller. He says this. He says, we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe. And yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. We're more wicked than we ever dared to believe. You're much worse than you think you are. And yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. You're way more loved than you think you are. That is the beautiful mystery of the gospel. And the extent to which you believe both of those two things will be the extent to which you are believing the gospel. Very quickly, right? We're going to flick to John chapter 21, do a little bit of a cool Bible study here, right? John chapter 21. Flick with me quick. I should hear rustling of paper, right? Flick with me to John chapter 21. Because one of the things I want to show you is how in the course of his life, Peter has begun to understand that he is more wicked than he dared to believe and yet he's more loved and accepted than he dared to hope, right? I want to show you that this has been true in his experience. So at the end of John chapter 21, the context is important. It is after the resurrection. Um, the disciples have gone back to fishing again. Peter, of course, has denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. And so Peter at this point in his life ought never to have been more aware of his sinfulness and fallenness. I imagine at this point, Peter has never felt more guilty, right? Even more guilty at the end of John 21 than what he does in Luke chapter five, right? But look what, look what happens. John chapter 21, verse seven. They're out in the boat, disciples. It says, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Jesus is on the beach and John recognizes him. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So what's going on here? There is probably never a moment in his life where Simon Peter feels more guilty. But rather than saying, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, what does he do? He jumps into the water and wants to get to Jesus as quickly as he possibly can. What has changed between Luke chapter five and John chapter 21? Peter understands who Jesus really is. He understands that he is more wicked than he ever dared to believe, but he also knows that he is more loved and accepted than he ever dared to hope. He knows that the gospel is true. And because he knows that, he doesn't want to run from Jesus, he wants to run to Jesus. That's what you do when you realize who Jesus really is. That's what some of you need to do with your own sin in your life. Stop hiding it from Jesus. Stop running away from him because of your sin. Run to him with it. He knows all about it anyway. Run to him with it. That's the mark that we're grasping the gospel more and more. And in our witnessing and evangelizing to our friends, we want them to know, yes, you're broken and messed up and flawed, but come and see a man who has told me everything that I've ever done and hasn't been put off by it. Last thing. 
the commitment then that comes with being a disciple. Look at verse 10. Back to Luke chapter five, sorry. Verse 10, Jesus says, do not be afraid. But he also says, from now on, you will catch men. Key little phrase, from now on. Peter won't be a fisherman primarily from now on. He will be a disciple and a disciple maker from now on. So when you, you go back to wherever it is that you're going back to next week, you're going back as a sixth form student or a fifth form student or a university student or a work or whatever it is that you're going to do, I want you to think of yourself from now on primarily, I am a disciple and a disciple maker. That is my identity. And with that identity comes a mission, the mission of catching men, specifically catching men and women alive and pointing them to the one who gives life and life to the full. That's what your life's to be about. Catch people alive and point them to the one that gives life and life to the full. Here's a little summary phrase of what we're to be. We're to be nobodies telling everybody about somebody, Jesus, right? It's not about you. We're nobodies, but we want to tell everybody about somebody, Jesus. Ordinary people doing ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. So you know it, right? You know the people in your life. You know the people that come to your mind right now when you think about what it means to share your faith. For most of you, I imagine it's some of your mates in school, right? Or maybe it's, it's strangers in school that you know you need to hang out with a little bit more. For some of you, I'm guessing it's probably your parents, family members. That can be really hard, but the Lord has placed you in that particular place so that he can use you there to fish for men. For some of you, it might be complete strangers. For some of you, it might be the people you play sport with. For some of you, it might be your teachers. I don't know who it is that you might be witnessing to. But you have been given a new identity, disciples, and a mission. Last thing in the passage, and then we're done. Verse 11, I think is designed by Luke to be one of the most dramatic verses in his gospel. It says, so they pulled up their nets and shore, left everything, and followed him. They left everything to follow Jesus. What did that mean for Simon Peter in that moment? It meant leaving his home, leaving his livelihood, leaving what had he just caught? The miraculous catch of fish. They left everything to follow Jesus. Now we've got to be clear, right? The, the text is not saying that we've all got to move away from home and sell our possessions in order to be faithful followers of Jesus. It's not saying that. But it is saying that Jesus must be more important to us than anything else. He must be more important than our own selfish ambitions. You've got to wear that up in your own heart. What do you want to do with your life? He must be more important to us than our own comfortable surroundings. You've got to wear that up. Where are you going to spend your life? He must be more important to us than maintaining our reputations. You've got to wear that up. Who are you living to impress? Following Jesus must be above everything else in our lives. You can't just tag him onto the edge of your life. It's not how Jesus works. That is not biblical Christianity. It might be something, but it's not biblical Christianity. You can't just tag him onto the edge of your life. They left everything to follow him. I've 
I've been so encouraged this week. I've, I've loved it. I really have enjoyed getting to spend time with you guys. Um, I'm incredibly optimistic about the potential that you have to be effective witnesses for Jesus in the world. But I'll be praying whenever we go home that this experience of Simon Peter's and the disciples will be yours, that you will make Jesus the single most important passion in your life, and that as you get to know him more and more and love him more and more, the people around you will be drawn to him more and more so that many, many, many people might come to know and love the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for um, the encouragement that it's been to be together this week. We are really grateful for that, and we, we want to really thank you for the encouragement that we've had together. Um, thank you for your word here, too, that even in this simple little passage, there's so much truth for us to mine and think about. Father, please make us committed disciples so that we can faithfully point others to the truth about the Lord Jesus. Help us now in our groups to chat about these things, to be awake and alert and diligent and enthusiastic so that we might encourage one another and that Jesus might be glorified. I pray these things in his name. Amen.